uh, one of the things about going through books of the Bible is like this, is there are texts that you wouldn't typically gravitate towards picking out when you're thinking about a sermon, the preacher, or a Bible study. And this morning, this is one of those texts for me. Like if I just, you know, if I could just choose any anything to preach from and encourage the, the saints with to keep following Jesus, this wouldn't be one top on my list, uh, at least not the second part of it. And so I've titled this message, Examples to Learn From. And at the end of Acts chapter 4, in the beginning of Acts chapter 5, we have a couple of examples that are set before us. Throughout the Bible, we have examples that are set before us. We have good examples and we have bad examples. We have good examples that we should model, that we should imitate the faith and the patience and the righteousness and the integrity and conviction and sacrifice and devotion of godly saints who've lived throughout history. But then we got examples that we should not follow, examples of rebellion Re- examples of hypocrisy, examples of of unbelief and fear and cowardice throughout the scripture. People will either be used by God in either an honorable way or a dishonorable way. Like Pharaoh, Pharaoh got to be used by God, but he got to be used as a, a vessel of dishonor, as as an example that we wouldn't want to follow, right? And so here in this text today, we got Barnabas and the, the early church that set before us as a godly example with, with ad, admirable qualities to imitate. But then we have this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, with some not so great qualities. Okay, so let's pray. We're going to dig into this. Hopefully, hopefully we'll be encouraged, but hopefully also we will experience reverence towards God stirred in our hearts as we look at this text. Father, as we open up your word, all of it is given to us, inspired by your spirit, given to us for our uh, edification, for it's profitable for us, for teaching, instruction, and righteousness that we might uh, be equipped for every good work. And as we read the story, as we read the narrative of what you were doing in the early church and how they were growing and how they were responding to your grace and how some weren't responding desirably to your grace, that that you would stir our hearts this morning and move us onto your agenda. Make us more like Jesus May we be more devoted, more committed, and, and more surrendered to your will as a result of opening up the scriptures today. I pray that you would speak through me and keep me from saying anything that doesn't line up with your heart or your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at the very end here. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. If you don't have your Bibles, it's up on the screen. I'm reading from the ESV. Now the number of all those, now the, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or of houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And then picking up in verse 1 of chapter 5, by the way, this chapter division does not serve us well. Okay, so originally it wasn't in there. So think this chapter division wasn't just imagine it's not there. 
Okay, continue the story. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back part for himself, some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out. And buried him. After an interval of three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And when Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much? And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Amen. It's quiet in here. And rightly so. So here's where we're going from the text. We're going to start on a positive note with the first example. Here's the big idea. God desires his people to walk in unity, generosity, sincerity, and reverence. And the Holy Spirit generates these qualities in the church. Okay? So first we see in verse 32. This was after verse 31. They were being threatened not to speak about Jesus, and they prayed, God, Lord, Sovereign Lord, God, look upon their threats, grant us boldness to speak. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with boldness to continue speaking the Word of God. This was a Spirit-filled church. And let's look at some of these characteristics that the Holy Spirit generated into the lives of the church. They were united. God desires his people to be united. He desires the unity of his church. Verse 32 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. They were together. They were united in heart and soul and mind and mission. They were, they were working together, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel like Paul exhorted the church to do. This was something that Jesus Christ, before he went to the cross, he prayed that this would be so about his people. You see, Satan has, has attacked the church and tried to extinguish the church in the mission of the church. Okay? He tried to do it externally through the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Stop talking about Jesus or we're going to beat you and throw you in the jail. Stop it! And they're like, we, 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 we can't help but speak about Jesus. And if it costs us our life, then so be it. Right? And so they, so externally the enemy tried to stomp them out. Okay, now here there's there's an attack internally. Okay? So so the enemy has another strategy and perhaps this is more more damaging is is to bring division within. Divide and conquer from within. Get them to turn on one another. Friendly fire. But Jesus prayed for this. Jesus prayed for the unity of the church. He knew that it would be the church would be attacked. That they would, they, that there would be, the enemy would try to divide them, that, that they would be effective and powerful as they work together in unison with the Lord and with one another. They would be most effective. Remember in the Old Testament, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, how nothing that they had purpose to do would have been impossible because they were like united and their intention was evil. 
And God like separated the language. There is power in unity, even for uh, unity that is based and, and aimed for an ungodly purpose. There's just power in unity. And so Jesus prayed for this in John 17, before he goes to the cross, this is like the Holy of Holies, the heart of God, God, the son talking to God, the father. And one of the things that's heavy on his heart is the unity of the church. And he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me that through their word, they may all be one just as you father are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Could it be that in Acts chapter four, this is an answer to Jesus's prayer being unfolded right before our eyes. God is uniting a people for himself, making them one, one heart, one mind, one mission, one, one father, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. All right. They, 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 they were united together and notice the effect of it when they're united together so that the end of Jesus's prayer here, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And by the way, this is, this is the key, the key point of the book of Acts to be witnesses. You will receive power to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. And their unity, the unity of the church working together, not fighting against each other, but working together was a testimony to the outside world. And it gave credibility to their witness. And when the church is divided, it it, it eats away at the credibility of the church. Unbelievers look at that and they're just turned off by the politics and the division and the friendly fire that goes on amongst churches. Jesus said that by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so we're committed to this here. This is something that comes straight from the heart of God. That we have genuine love for one another. That we have unified diversity. Unified diversity. God's created a people who are, are very diverse. We look different, talk different. We have some different perspectives on things. Different experiences, cultural experiences. Some of us come out of poverty or, um, and some of us come from lots of means and, 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 and some of us come from an educate, have an educate very, uh, they, I obviously don't have a very educated background. Some of us have a lot of education and some of us have a little and some of us have very little, right? But, but God unites us together from all walks of life. He makes a people for himself, for the glory of his name, to be a testimony, a witness, to the lost. God desires this. The early church was walking this out. As we've talked about in the book of Acts, there's a, a lot of things. Most of the things in Acts is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. Most of it. There are some little things that are prescriptive in Acts, like repent, like that applies to you and me. Belief. You know, in the epistles that the, the apostles wrote, they give prescriptions for many of these things that, that we see in the lives of the church. And walking in unity was one of them. Paul also prayed for this in Romans 15, 5 and 6. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul prayed for that as well. It was on his heart. Paul exhorted it in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Paul exhorted the church in Ephesus to be eager to protect, to maintain, to cultivate unity within the church. Those of us who are parents know how it feels to have your precious children, if you have more than one child, your precious children whom you love to bicker and fight, to scratch, to be selfish, to act like mere kids, mere five-year-olds, mere toddlers. It's, it's displeasing. It's, it's, un, it's not delightful to a mother or a father. To, to hear or see their children 
act in such a way. But how beautiful, how good, and how pleasant it is for the dollar kids to dwell together in unity. To play together, to laugh together, to enjoy the good gifts of life together without bickering and fighting, but sharing in love. It's beautiful. There's moments we have, we, we have those moments in our house and we have those, those unpleasant moments in our house and, and I, I think I feel a little bit like God the Father does when His children bicker and fight and there's disunity among the church. God commands a blessing, Psalm 133, upon that the unity of his people okay it's it comes straight from the heart of god paul again exhorts it in philippians he he exhorts the philippians to uh to stand together with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel he says if there's any encouragement in christ uh complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love being in full accord with one mind so this is prescriptive okay Walk in unity with your brother and sister. Love your brother and sister. You get to spend eternity with them, so get used to them. Love them. Enjoy them. Pray for them. Bear with them. So that, that's our heart here. We're, we, we major on the majors. It's our aim to major on the majors and not let secondary issues divide us. So we... That we're united on the essentials. There's some liberty in the non-essentials, but in all things, we're gonna, we're gonna love one another. Okay? The other thing we see in this passage is we see radical generosity, which is another one of our values here at City Church. Based, uh, verse 32b says that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. By the way, this is a great principle of stewardship. If, if we're going to steward well the resources that we have, we need to shift our mindset from an owner's mindset to a steward's mindset. We need to come to the foundational place that, God, this is all yours. And the only reason I have it is because you entrusted it to me. You want to meet my needs through it, and you want me to share and do good with what you've, the excess that you've provided me with. And so they didn't have the, they didn't have the mindset of the t- a typical toddler. Mine! Mine! Give me that back! You can't play with that! It's mine! They didn't have that mentality. They, they, they sought to share. And verse 34, it says, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as, for as many as were owners of lands and houses, they sold them. And they brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed. To each as anyone had need. Now they did have personal property. I, again, I don't think Acts, Luke is teaching and promoting uh, communism or socialism. This was a voluntary thing. It, it wasn't, it wasn't mandatory that everybody had to sell everything and you can't have any private property. No. But as needs came up within, as there were poor brothers and sisters that were uh, among the saints in corporate worship and, and, and the, those with, with lots of or more means would look over and see a brother or sister on Sunday morning without a jacket, without, without good sandals, without whatever. They, they would be moved by the spirit to like, I'm going to give here. Man, they're sporting them old school sandals. They need to upgrade to some, some ones that, that, that actually, you know, stay together, right? And so they would contribute to the needs of the people as they saw the needs among, among them. This was fulfillment of what the Old Testament instructed. In Deuteronomy chapter 14 and 15, God said that, that there would be, verse 4, Deuteronomy 15, 4 says, but there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you. He exhorts the Israelites, if you see your poor brother, don't shut your heart up towards him. Like open up wide your hand and your heart and give to your brother. So if there is somebody lacking, that their poverty uh, wouldn't, wouldn't exist among you. But later on it says there's always going to be some poor in the land. But among you guys, make sure you're taking care of one another. So this was an Old Testament principle, and these guys were living it out. 
And not because it was the letter of the law, but because the spirit of God was moving the church to radical generosity. The spirit of God was breaking the grips of materialism on the hearts of those who had become followers of Jesus Christ. Now we, we live and breathe and, and spend our time in a culture of materialism. We're saturated with it. It's before us. There's advertisement. It's stuff, stuff, stuff. Our children, oh, I'm grieved that our children are so saturated with stuff. Like we just got too much stuff. Our, our hearts are too attached to stuff in this life. And, and what the Spirit of God was doing in the hearts of the early church is he was moving them away to have this, this materialistic mindset. He was moving them to give to, to what Jesus taught. Don't store up your treasures here on earth. Store them up in heaven. Don't store them up here because the, the moth will, will, will eat away at it. The, the rust, it's going to rust. It's going to, it's going to fail. And so, so the early church, they were living kingdom minded lives, gospel centered lives. And this was the power of the gospel and working in their lives. This was the power of the spirit changing their hearts. Because they, they were committed to something greater than themselves and greater than their own comfort. They were about the kingdom of God. They wanted to see the kingdom of God spread. And so an example that, that Luke gives us here is Barnabas. So Barnabas was, was a pr- uh, prominent leader in the church. He was, his name was Joseph, but he was also called by the apostles Barnabas. That's a, that's a great name for a son. Barnabas. It means son of encouragement. That, that's what they called him. Now, they, he probably got that name. Barnabas probably got that name because he was a very encouraging brother. He was probably going around the church and curt like a golden retriever. Come on, you can do it. Believe the gospel. Come on, lay that stuff down. He was going around encouraging the saints, helping those who, who needed help. So verbally, he was encouraging people. He was, he was being generous with his words of encouragement. Grace was on his lips. This was a godly man. But you know what? He didn't just love in word and talk. He loved in deed and truth. He didn't, he wasn't just an encourager and just wasn't giving with his words, communicating love and value to people with his words. He was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, and he sold a field that belonged to him, which is interesting because Levites typically didn't get uh, a portion of land. So maybe his, uh, there's some different views on why he had that. One of them is like maybe his wife inherited it or something like that. Uh, But anyways, he had a field. And he sold the field that belonged to him, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. So, and and maybe he had maybe he had more than that. Maybe maybe he had his own home, or maybe he had more than just this field. And he's like, I don't need this. I don't need this vacation house, this lake house. I mean, it's nice and all, but like, I just want to be with the saints, right? So I don't need this. There's some poor brothers and sisters who don't even have their own house. So I'm going to sell this land. And so he's, he's, he, he becomes, Luke introduces him here. He becomes a key person in Acts. Um, later on, uh, when Saul gets converted, uh, like everybody's afraid of Saul, like in Acts chapter nine, like they, they weren't sure if he was for real or if he was like a, uh, incognito terrorist trying to come into the church and continue to kill Christians, right? So they were afraid. They're like, I, I am not gonna, like disciple or even let this guy come to my house or anything. But Barnabas, he took a risk with this guy. Everybody else is like, stay away from that guy. That's like Osama bin Laden got saved, right? Like, nah, he, he ain't coming to our church. Hey, bro, you can't come here, right? But Barnabas was like, come on, man. Come on. And he, and he introduced them to the church. He, he, you know, and, and, and so he was kind of the, the, a bridge, a bridge builder for the apostle Paul, who was Saul at that time. And then Barnabas was also, he became a traveling companion of Paul. He became a, a prominent leader in, in, uh, in, uh, at Antioch, the church, a spirit-filled, diverse church at Antioch, a mission-sending church at, at, at Antioch in Acts chapter 13. And at one point, 
Paul and Barnabas, Acts chapter 15, they get into a little little riff, and Paul doesn't want John Mark to roll with his uh, mission team anymore because John Mark had bailed out. And so, you know, Paul's like, man, we'll, I'll take Silas, but John Mark, that dude's not committed. We're not, we're not going to take, but Barnabas is like, no, no, he is. It's all right, man. We can restore him. I mean, he, he's genuine. He just, he just got scared or, you know, whatever the dialogue must have been. But Paul and, and Barnabas, they went separate ways. Of course, God used that. Barnabas and John Mark and then Paul and Silas, God, God used that. But, but anyways, Barnabas was this encourager. He was this godly example that Luke sets before us. And so God wants generosity in the church. Here's some prescriptive language in the New Testament concerning generosity. Romans 12, Paul exhorted the Roman Christians, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Okay, this isn't descriptive, it's prescriptive. Do this. Paul says in Ephesians 4, let, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to give, something to share with anyone in need. Hebrews thirteen sixteen. do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You want to worship God? This is one of the ways you can worship God. And then first John, and there's many other verses that, that hit on this. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children. Let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. So Barnabas was walking this out. And then in this context, Luke introduces this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. So we looked at the good example, okay? That's all positive. Now we're going to look at the negative side of things here uh, in the story. And I, and I love that the Bible does this. It doesn't just whitewash and just give us the the, the, the positive highlights, it gives us the raw, nitty-gritty. I mean, when we think about the early church, we think healthy church. We think thriving church, ideal church, the golden ages. Like, man, if we just get back to early church Christianity, it would be awesome. Okay, well, maybe not this story. We don't want like stuff like this happening, right? We don't want people lying to the Holy Spirit and dropping dead in our church. Right? We don't... <laughs> This was New Testament, by the way. This was after the new covenant had been established. By the way, God is the same God of the Old Testament as he is of the New Testament. He is a holy God. He's all powerful. He's a consuming fire. Okay, and so there's this couple here, Ananias and Sapphira, who were amongst the church, among those who believed, right? They were rolling with the church, and then they they probably saw Barnabas' example, and they were probably inspired by him. They probably saw the recognition that Barnabas got, the honor, the respect, and, and other leaders that that they got when they, man, they gave up everything. They sold that field, man, they, they look how many people they blessed through their generosity, man. Barnabas is awesome. Ananias is inspired, like, man, I want some of that. I got a field too. Let's, 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 let's do this. So they, they, they sold the field. They sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back it, some of it for himself, some of the proceeds. He brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Peter says, this is satanic. Now, when we read this story, I don't know if, about you guys. When we first read through this, I don't know if you felt like, God, why did you do that? Did anybody else feel like that? Just be honest. Like, God, why did you do that? That was mean. Did anybody emotionally have that response? Like, come on, God, I thought you're a God of mercy and grace and love. Anybody? Yeah. Yeah. This is the New Testament. Okay. Peter says, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds in the land. Now, I don't think Luke's wanting us to to all be scared into tithe and tithes and offerings and like if you don't bring your full tithes you're going to drop dead right I don't think he's going there okay I don't I I think what Luke highlights here with this story and Peter brings out is that Ananias and Sapphira were pretenders they were pretending 
They wanted to be, well, they, well, one, it's clear they were lying. They weren't being honest. And their lie, their offense was towards God. Uh, by the way, all sin is primarily, it's offensive to God. David, when he repented for committing adultery, murdering Uriah, he said, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. The verse four says, he's lied, you've lied to God. You've, con- you've contrived this deed in your heart and you've lied to God about it. So they were, they were lying to God and this was, this wasn't like kind of a put on the spot. This wasn't a mere exaggeration. Like exaggerating is lying, right? It's bearing false. It's not being true, not being. This wasn't like, um, you know, just real quick. You just didn't have time to process and, and, and answer exactly right. You know, you, you just were kind of put in the moment and you accidentally told a lie, but it came out because you were afraid. This was preconceived. This was like, okay, let's, let's just, let's sell the land and let's just give this part of it. Now they could have kept, they, first of all, they didn't have to sell any of it, Peter says. You know, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Like you didn't, you didn't have, that's yours. You didn't have to sell it, right? Uh, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Couldn't you just say here, I want to give half of the proceeds of this field that we sold. You know, we're struggling financially right now, but this is all we can do. And, and, and I'm sure, you know, the church would have been in tears like, oh, that's awesome. You know, they gave half, right? But no, they wanted to be seen as more devoted than they really were. Okay, we call that hypocrisy. And I think that we struggle with this maybe a little more than we realize. And I'm glad that people aren't dropping dead every time they tell a lie today because I don't think we would have the attendance that we have here today. I, I might not be up here today if that was the case because we're all guilty before a holy God. We are all guilty before a holy God. They would have done well to heed Jesus's exhortation. In Luke chapter 12, Ananias and Sapphira would have done well to heed Jesus's exhortation when he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will, will not be revealed or nothing that will not be known. Therefore, what you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. God was protecting his church from this leaven of hypocrisy spreading throughout the church. This deceit, this hypocrisy. The church was in in baby stages. There was rapid growth, and God was protecting that leaven from spreading to the church. God does not want a church full of people that are hypocritical and false. He wants genuine, sincere followers. Jesus also said in Matthew 6, he says, Be aware of practicing your righteous your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So practicing righteousness before God is good. Okay. Jesus also said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works. Okay. That they may glorify your father in heaven. But here's the deal. If you're doing what you're doing and you're giving and you're praying and you're fasting and you're, 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 you're serving in the church merely to be seen by men, then you don't have a reward. God is not looking for mere external devotion, mere external worship. He wants worship from the inside out. He wants our hearts. He wants a people who worship him in spirit and in truth. David prayed in Psalm 51, 6. He said, behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And in my hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. As I read earlier, Psalm, Psalm 15, it says that, that the one who dwells in, in God's presence in his holy hill, on his holy hill, uh, is one who speaks the truth in his heart. The church is called and described as, called to be and described by the apostle Paul in, in one of the epistles to Timothy to be a pillar of truth. 
to be those who love the truth, embrace the truth, build their life on the truth, speak the truth in love, even when it hurts. And, and Ananias and Sapphira were failing to do that. They were, they weren't sincere. Uh, there's, there's debate as to whether they were genuine Christians or not. And I don't want to spend much time going there today. But God knows. We know that God knows whether they were genuine or not. The Bible says that God, the foundation of God stands firm with this seal, with this uh, inscription that, that the Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Okay? So we know that God knows and we know in First Corinthians chapter 10 or 11, we know that there's a category of Christians who can eat and partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner and get sick and actually die. So I take that to mean that God brings them home a little early because of their ungodly living. Okay? So there's, there's a category like that. Okay, but ultimately God's the judge and he knows the hearts of men and he will judge all things when we stand before him. We also know that there are many genuine Christians who have told lies after they've become a Christian. If that's you, would you raise your hand and not tell one right now? (laughs) Whether you did intentionally or not. You see, we're all guilty before a holy God. And Satan is the father of all lies. And when we align ourselves with deception and lying and hypocrisy, we align ourselves with Satan himself, who is the father of lies. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so we must be people who love the truth, embrace the truth, speak the truth, stand upon the truth. God desires reverence in his people as well. Notice the response. When this happens, when Ananias and Sapphira fall dead for telling a lie to the Holy Spirit, great fear came upon all who heard it. I think Luke wants us, he wants that to be a takeaway. Luke's encouraging the fear of the Lord here by telling the story. Uh, it's, it's prescribed in other portions of scripture. We'll look at in just a minute here. But it's, it's, it's healthy. When we read this, this story about Ananias and Sapphira, we should be very cautious and slow to be like, yeah, God, you got them. Get those, get those liars. They deserve that. We, we should examine our own hearts before a holy God. I, I know that's been my response this week. I mean, I'm just, I, I feel like I've had some trembling before God this week, thinking I'm going to stand up here and preach this. God, have mercy on me. I'm only alive because of your mercy and your grace, because I deserve what Ananias and Sapphira got. And so with God, Psalm 130 says, with, with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament teaches the fear of the Lord. Great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard these things. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Well, you say, well, yeah, that's Jesus. What about the apostles? Well, Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. Through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Hebrews 12, if you need to cultivate a healthy fear of God in your heart, meditate on this passage here says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. 
For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence in all. For our God is a consuming fire. This is not very popular in our day to think of God as a consuming fire or to think in any way we should have fear towards God. But I think we've we've gone way too much on the other side in the name of grace and love and mercy. And we view God as a pushover. And we presume upon the grace and the mercy of God like he's not going to do anything. Maybe that was Ananias and Sapphira's perspective, like eh, he's gracious. And, you know, maybe they just didn't examine their own hearts in, in that thing. Or maybe they had a habit of lying their entire life. Deceit their entire life. And God was just like was fed up. You're not going to bring that into the church. You've had opportunities to repent. Who knows? God knows. We don't know the whole story. God does. But a takeaway for us is let's fear the Lord. John Newton said, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." There's a sweet spot there for us. We should fear God and have reverence in all of a holy God, especially as we read passages like this in, in Acts chapter 5. But yet we should run to the gospel, run to the cross, and find peace and rest and relief, knowing that Christ took our judgment on the cross. So that we can be forgiven and free and live in the liberty of the children of God. And live in relationship with our Heavenly Father. But don't fail to take God seriously. God will punish sin. He will discipline. Don't treat God like a pushover. Don't live your life like God doesn't see everything and know everything. The fear of the Lord is living with the awareness that God's eyes are in every place beholding the good and the evil. I mean, just think about the things you would or wouldn't say in private if you were reminded that God's watching. Think about the things you wouldn't click on your TV or on your computer in moments of temptation if you were reminded that God's watching. God sees me right now. And that should encourage you in a positive way if you're doing right. If you're walking up right before him, you should be encouraged that God sees you. He sees what you he sees your faithfulness and obedience in the secret place and he's going to reward you openly. But if you're pretending publicly and 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 going around doing secret things in the dark, sinful things in the dark privately, you should be afraid and have a healthy fear. You should be afraid because God is a holy God. He's not like a little kitty cat to play with. He's a roaring lion. With that said, so here's some application. Avoid seeking praise and recognition of people. Do you care more about what people think of you? Or do you care more about what God thinks of you? Are you more committed to being seen as loving, devoted, generous, all out? Or are you, are you actually committed to, to being genuine? To genuinely worshiping God in spirit and in truth? See, the Pharisees fell into this trap. They, they craved the praises of people. They loved their money and they craved the praises of people. They wanted the lust, the, the pride of life. And the lust of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Let your worship be from the inside out, from private to public. This is how God wants us to function, from the inside out. From from in, like cultivate a devotional life with God. If the only time you're reading your Bible or praying or worshiping 
is on Sunday, you know, or Wednesday, then that's a problem. If the only time you're looking spiritual is on Sunday and Wednesday when other people can see you, then that's that there's something wrong with that picture. Our Christianity shouldn't just be a, a once a week or twice a week deal. It's a it's a daily relationship with the living God. And and we're all we all have a temptation and tendency to do this, to want to look better than we really are. I mean, social media exposes that, right? Facebook and Instagram. What kind of pictures do we mostly post? Those of us who are on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, do we post the, the pictures when we're having an argument with our wife? We don't have time to take a picture then. Or when the house is messy and the kids are going crazy? Let's get a picture and post it on Instagram. This is great. No, we post nice, clean, happy pictures. We want to present ourselves as our, as we want to put our, our best foot forward, right? It was said about Abraham Lincoln when Abraham Lincoln was getting his portrait done. The artist said, do you want me to draw the wart on your face or leave it out? He said, leave it off. Warts and all. Love that. Yeah, there's a wart on my face. That's how I'm made. I'm not going to. That's who I am. Right. God sees it all. And, you know, he's created fruit, by the way, fruit to 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 give us some indicators on the outside. What's on the inside? When you go to the store, ladies, I'm assuming most of the ladies do the shopping. My lady of our house does most of the grocery shopping. When you go to the store to get some bananas or apples or avocados, what's the indicator that the bananas are, are ready to eat? Huh? Okay, you, you, like them, you like them really overdone. They're yellow. Maybe they're starting to spot. You want a little sweetness in there, right? Yeah, and so, so God's, God's created fruit to reflect on the outside what's on the inside. There's a problem. Like if you go and you get a banana that's, that, that is lightly spotted, it's yellow, lightly spotted, but it's like still hard and, and ripe and, or unripe and, and unsweet. Like there's, it tricked you. There's, there, it's not consistent on the outside with what's on the inside. And God wants us to be consistent on the inside with how we are on the outside. So if we're lifting our hands and we're saying, oh, I love you, Jesus, I love you, Jesus. Like, he wants that to be real. Like, to come from the inside. So if you're struggling with that not being real, you might need to put your hands down and talk to God. And wait until that becomes real in your heart to lift your hands, to sing, I surrender all. Or you may want to change the words of the song when we're, when we're singing, I surrender all. You might want to say, Lord, help me surrender all. Cause I'm just holding it like this. Help me surrender all. So we may want to turn those into prayers and, and say, God, change my heart. Examine ourselves. You know, I do this when, when I'm singing worship songs. If I think, well, I'm saying this, but it's not really true right now. God, would you make this true? Would you work that in me? I want to surrender all. I want to be all out for you. You know, a few years ago, there was a um, little scandal thing that happened. There was a breach in a, there was a, a website called Ashley Madison. Y'all remember that? So it was an, it was a website created, from what I understand, it was a website created to help uh, network adulterers so that they can more comfortably and smoothly do their dirty work without anybody else knowing. Somebody broke into that network, got in and got a list of all the names. Kind of makes me like, yeah, I'm glad that happened, but also I just feel grieved feel grieved that many of those names that were exposed on there were were pastors, Christians, Christian leaders. But I'm reminded of what we just read in Luke 12, that that everything's going to be exposed one day. Like we think it's hidden. We think nobody else sees. We may feel like even God doesn't know about this or God doesn't care or whatever. I don't I don't know what the the thinking process is when somebody's in that state. But God in his mercy 
Let, let those people be exposed. Exposed. So they have time to repent. They were confronted. They're, I mean, that, that would be very embarrassing to have your name publicly that, that you were on this website and intentionally planning to commit adultery. God's eyes are in every place, beholding the good and evil. So let us cultivate all and reverence towards him, knowing that he sees and knows all. And, and love and embrace the truth in your heart. Be real. Be real with God and be real with one another. You know, we have community groups. And here at City Church, we try to cultivate authentic community. Loving, authentic community where we can be real and we can confess our junk one to another. The reason we can be like like radically real and honest and transparent about our brokenness is because the gospel provides forgiveness and transformation of that brokenness. Now, if, if, if we didn't believe in a gospel of grace that provides forgiveness, transformation, cleansing, and acceptance, then it would be much harder to confess some of those deep, dark sins. But I, I want to challenge us to be, be real with God and be real with one another. So let's pray. Lord, we all stand guilty before you as sinners, but you, through Christ, have declared us righteous, forgiven, and free, and you tell us to walk like it, to live like it. I pray Acts 9.31 over us that we would have your peace being built up together, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and that we would multiply, that we would grow, that we would be healthy on the inside, in our hearts, within our church, and that that health would spread and that we would be fruitful and multiply. And so, God, if there's just any of us who are just rotting away on the inside and need new life and need, God, your Holy Spirit to bring good fruit, sweet fruit of the Spirit, I pray, God, that you would help us make that connection with you. Show us, expose in your grace and mercy. Shine the light on those areas of darkness in our hearts so that we can experience the power of the gospel. We invite you to x-ray us with your word and with your Holy Spirit. But God, would you treat the cancer and heal the cancer when you see it? When you see the sin, thank you that you are our healer. You're our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you his peace.